Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars related to game design and publishing. These panels have been made possible thanks to Double Exposure and their game design convention Metatopia at Metatopia Online 2020. These panels have also been made possible thanks to the kind contributions of the panel speakers and moderators at this event. Now, let's get to it. Episode 330, Design and Composition 101, presented by Jack Para and Melissa Gay. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Designing Composition 101. Um, my name is Jack Para. I'm the Artist Alley Coordinator for Double Exposure. I'm a uh, freelance game illustrator and book illustrator. I've done work for card games, board games, uh, tabletop RPGs, and I'm currently illustrating the third in a trilogy of kids' novels. Would you like to and introduce I'm Melissa oh. <laughs> Gay. Uh, I am also a freelance illustrator. I got my start in uh, scientific illustration and then uh, swiftly moved into where I really wanted to be, tabletop role-playing games. And I have uh, illustrated uh, many um, small to large uh, press games throughout uh, my career. Uh, and I've also done some sci-fi uh, book cover illustration and um, a bunch of other random marketing stuff like we freelance illustrators do. Okay, so basically the way I like to do panels that I run is I have an outline that I work off of and touch on subjects. And if anyone has questions throughout, feel free to ask them through the Twitch chat and there'll be a They'll they'll be uh what's it called uh prompted to us uh, and we can uh, answer them for you. Okay, so to start, um, composition is a little of one of the tougher areas to directly teach because there's such a uh, subjectiveness to it and a flow to it um essentially yes it's about having a pleasing flow to your piece but also it could be the opposite it could be you don't want it to be pleasing you want it to be jarring or erratic and that's another way to approach it but uh most of it comes with practice and looking at other people's compositions but there's definitely some uh regular approaches that people use, and that's what we're going to cover. Um, if you have any, most of what I have is pretty much uh, works for everything, not just games, because it's kind of universal. But if you have anything specific about a game, a type of game situation, please ask. I will jump in and say that uh, at one point, I, I heard someone describe composition as the language we artists use to communicate our vision for a picture to the audience. 
And I, I think you know, I've seen Jack's outline, and uh, it will outline some of these uh, this visual linguistics that will uh, help you communicate better. Exactly. So to start off, uh, there's a list that, in a, as an illustrator or as a client talking to an illustrator, that we need to know. Um, so first is you need to know the final dimensions and the orientation of your piece, meaning its size and is it vertical or horizontal um, or square. Um, this is very important. I once had a client change from a square to a, a rectangle in the end stage on me. Oh, no. And... <laughs> And it, it, it was a little interesting to, <laughs> thankfully it was a digital piece because it was a little easier to change. But, uh, <laughs> um, but this is very important for that reason because I could have very well had something get cropped off completely of the piece that was important or have to start over. Um, next thing we need to know is number of characters. That's important because you need to know how many characters you got to fit into that space, uh, how many people, monsters, characters don't necessarily have to be a person or a, a humanoid. It can be, you know, a dragon. It could be a location, even you know, it could be an item, like Lord of the Rings. The ring is a character, basically. Um, Can I jump in with a yeah, quick? Feel free to jump in whenever you need. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Just uh, sort of one of my, um, I wouldn't call it a pet peeve, but certainly a challenge that I've had to deal with over the course of uh, illustrating for, for game designers who, by and large, are writers more than artists, you know? And writers tend to think about things a certain way. And artists tend to think about them a different way. Our job is to sell your book. You know, it's um, uh, the writer's job to make everyone interesting. And so consequently, uh, when writers give us, or game designers give us a list of characters, there's often no clear visual hierarchy for us to go on as to how to make, um, how, to put these characters on a cover in a way that makes sense and is visually, not just visually interesting, uh, but captivating at the size of a postage stamp. So that if somebody glances at your work across a room, they won't see a mush of 11 characters. <laughs> yeah. A composition yep. helps with that. <laughs> yep. And that's also why it's important to know the number of characters and the final dimensions because most illustrators work bigger than final size but we still got to know what the final size is to know what detail is going to be there what's going to get lost what's going to read um you know i've worked on uh car game art painterly car game art so i'm talking like a painting that has to read in an inch and a half square you know <laughs> Well, that's so. the best <laughs> exercise. Boy, if you want to hone your skill with focal point, that is the way to do it. Yep. <laughs> exactly. And value. 
Yes. Um, and coming to that, uh, next thing on my list is important, important characters and items versus not important. If you have a whole list of things on the on the the cover or the interior piece or whichever it is, we need to know which ones to make more important. Which one's going to be in the big and in the front? Which one's going to be tiny in the back? You know, if it's a lot of characters, they're not all going to be able to be equally important. It's just going to look like a jumble. Um, uh, space for titles and verbiage. Um, if you know what, if it's a book, you're going to have a title at the top, most likely. So we leave space in that area to be covered. Basically, we'd expect that part of the art not to show. But with card games, especially, sometimes there's little icons and symbols that you got to work out too. So we need to know if you know where those are going to be, we need to know. Or we need to have a discussion. Or, or have a discussion about it in the beginning to know, especially with multiple pieces, what area to leave dull. We are going to put the most important element of the composition right under that icon if you don't tell us. Yep, always. <laughs> Murphy's Law composition, always. <clears throat> and, you know, it's funny. You, you have to, like, it's good to have a list like this to, to kind of, have a checklist because I am general. I've been in this business for 20 years, something like that. And uh, I still have to be told to leave room enough for the title because I'm designing posters in my head, but like, you know, to sell at conventions, but then, Oh wait, I need six more inches for the art director to put a title yep. on this book. <laughs> and and if the graphic designer has already done those borders, let us know. Even send us a picture of them. Yeah. <laughs> you know? oh, that helps so much. <laughs> I've had that problem too. <laughs> well, yeah. I think I think we've all been victim to the <laughs> the border and or graphic design situation. <laughs> yep. Um which brings us to in the discussion of uh full bleed or not is it going to go right to the edge of the page or is there going to be a like a white border or a page border or something around it because if it's going right to the edge of the page we'll do a little extra um art that we don't care about that'll blend off and be uh trimmed off um and with the borders that's where we have what's called the live area that's an area further in from the the edges that we know is okay to put things in important things in Th that no matter what that live area is going to be safe to put important uh characters or details in right safe to put it there <laughs> <That's> yeah. <laughs> the operative phrase so are there any questions so far it seems like everyone is following along. Okay. All right. So next step is the importance of thumbnails. Thumbnails are little, literally little thumbnail-sized sketches that we draw to decide the composition and to get an idea of it. Um, 
because there are little quick drawings, there there's not a lot of importance put onto them. You know, if they don't end up getting used, we don't. You know, we're not sad, or at least not as sad. <laughs> I will say one other thing about thumbnails. I have like sent art directors a page of thumbnails, and they're like, "Oh, well, we want to use this one for the piece in question, but we'd also like this one for this other project." So, yep. thumbnails are your friends. <laughs> I, I've had that happen. I've had uh, a client choose part of one thumbnail and part of another and combine them, which is fine too because yeah. I've already done it. Um, here, I'll put up on the extra screen here. Um, these are some thumbnails I did for my recent book client. Uh, it's a hockey team in a rink. But, uh, you know, three different views, three different options of how to take care of this scene. You know, they're not super detailed. You can get the idea of what what they are. But, you know... They took very little time to do. <laughs> and especially with something that has 10, 12 characters in it. <laughs> they're important. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Practice that visual hierarchy. Woo! <laughs> you have anything else to add, Melissa, about thumbnails or? Well, I, I would just like to say about thumbnails. It's, it's a really... <clears throat> I know we're going to talk about this later, about focal point, but uh, when I started out in this business, you know, my uh, experience, I guess, as an artist was botanical illustration. So you are literally drawing what is in front of you, and there's not really one part of a plant that's more important than any other if you're, like, literally just transcribing plant anatomy on onto a page. However, when I branched out into illustration, all of a sudden, hierarchy of visuals became very, very important. Now, uh, when I started all this, I had no idea about focal point. But thumbnails, thumbnails can be a great way of really nailing your focal point in a piece. If you have like a little, a hundred little squares or, or whatever, 20 little squares, and you're just dealing with simple shapes, dark and light, uh, you know, circle, triangle, whatever, you're, you begin to think less about the fine details that you might like to do and more about of the visual punch you want the subject of your piece to have on the viewer and it can be a great way of sort of retraining yourself so i like to keep a thumbnail diary if i have like i don't know some time during the day i will just jot down some thumbnail sketches of just whatever you know if, if i can't think of anything to thumbnail out i will just start jotting down some shapes just abstract forms. Anyway, it's it's a great way of freeing your mind as an artist and sort of um, not just learning to focus, but also learning to unlock your creativity a little bit. To think yep. of pictures in a different way. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's another point I, 
I was going to talk about with thumbnails is that the more you do, the harder it is to come up with an idea for that same picture. And sometimes that harder to come up with idea is the perfect one. You know, exactly. It push. It gets you to push to get new ideas, new angles, new approaches. Um, for example, the the three I have on the uh, on the screen there, I didn't do just three. I did probably twenty. You know, <laughs> and these I cleaned up. I cleaned up a little so the so the client could read them. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Sometimes I don't remember to do that, and then my client is like, mm, "What?" It depends um, on the client what? too. Like this one, I know yeah. can read some of my scratchier ones. Sorry, yes. go ahead. No, that's okay. What uh, one of my favorite web comic artists? Uh, uh, do you know Wondermark, the web comic? Uh, David Malky, I believe, is the writer illustrator of that. It's really cool. He said he likes to not just find the the first idea that pops into his head for the joke. He likes to find the fifth idea because you get through the expected in those first four times, and then everything after that is something fresh and uh, and exciting and unexpected that's going to be uh, much more interesting to your audience. Exactly. Um, so why don't we move into our next point then, unless somebody has some questions about we thumbnails. We do have a question. Well, not specifically about uh, thumbnails, but or specifically, right. There's currently a question that has to do with working with a client or an art manager. So from Mindless Indulgent 1985, we have, how do artists work together with people that are doing layout for an RPG book, or do these two people not interact at all? It depends on the company, honestly. It, uh, different companies are going to have their different sort of workflow, and you just are flexible about that. But if you have any question about the layout, Generally speaking, you can always ask them or ask your point of contact, whether it's an art director or the game designer directly. You can always say, hey, where's the title going to go? Uh, where's the little logo going to go? What about the author names? It, it's um, You can always get information just by asking. Yeah. No, never be afraid to ask. I ask questions constantly. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, it, dep it depends really on the project and what, what the client knows already. Um, big companies, you may not have as much access. I have some friends who work for like Marvel and DC, and they say, and like Penciler say, they've never talked to the anchor. They've never met the anchor, right. you know, or the colorist, you know. on your project director. Yeah. But, you know, it doesn't hurt to reach out. And if they don't answer, well, <laughs> then you then you make your best guess. And if it's something that's permanent, they're stuck with it. <laughs> you have done your due diligence. That's the important thing. I can't get in trouble. <laughs> uh, any other questions? That's it for right now. Okay. Okay, so next we are going to go to focal point. Um, basically, uh, focal point is where you want the viewer's eye to be drawn. 
like the using certain visual language we can make it so the viewer's eye goes exactly where we want it to go um whether they know it or not it's magic <laughs> <laughs> um and uh for instance i'm going to skip around a little in the outline here but eye lines eye lines are a good way to get the viewer where you want so where a character is looking makes the viewer look that direction human nature yep <laughs> unavoidable <laughs> don't do it if you don't want the viewer to look there <laughs> exactly exactly the direction of like a character's head or angles of their shoulders can create essentially visual arrows or diagonal lines that also direct the uh, the viewer a certain way. Um, like if you look at the thumbnails I have up there, uh, the third one, which I have as the center line on the ice of the hockey ring, yeah, it's just a center line on the ice, but it's pointing to the two center figures. That's not accidental. You know? <laughs> it can be sometimes, but in this case it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> um and the stands on the side they point towards that line that points towards the center you know little tricks like that while they're simple do a lot to get the viewer where they want to go where you want them to go sometimes it only takes a simple trick or or um you know visual device sometimes we have a tendency to overthink i think is illustrators yep. particularly as people that maybe like rendering a lot of picky detail maybe we tend to overthink and forget the power of like you know a black triangle against a white circle <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned um, value earlier you yes know, value super super uh focal point pull anything that is uh sort of the lightest value on your page. And by value, I just mean uh, light or dark. Uh, the lightest value against the darkest value will always draw the eye immediately, especially if there's a hard edge there instead of a, a soft edge. Fun tricks like that. Okay. Well, I assume what you talked about. My uh, screen got, my connection got a little jumpy there, but uh, I yeah, have a general idea what you were talking about. So. Good. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so if, um, so let's move on to the to more things about focal point then, um, and good composition. Um, Avoid placing items directly on the center line. While that'll get your person to look, that'll get the viewer to look right at that item, it looks kind of boring. If everything's in the center all the time, it doesn't really, it's not dynamic, it doesn't have any flow to it, it's just kind of there. Um, sometimes that's what you want, so it, it can be used effectively, but sparingly for for uh 
for a pleasing image. For games, especially. I mean, I think everybody wants to convey a certain amount of action with their game, even if it's a very thought-provoking, uh, contemplative game. There's always some sort of action happening on the cover. Yeah, um... Yeah, actually, I think I'll jump around a little more again. Just made this outline, so this way is flowing a little better, so I'm going to switch it up a little. Okay, so next on the, the screen, we'll go to the roll of thirds. Is a design composition. If you can see the, the intersecting lines on my uh, shared screen there. A good way to. Can you see my arrow move? My cursor move? Or is it just the flat screen? It's just the flat screen. Okay. So where the lines intersect to make the, the plus type symbols, putting your focal point on one of those adds a nice relaxed composition. You know, it, it gives you. It, it makes it more interesting. Um, crossing two of them can make it even more dynamic. Um, and putting it anything on one of those intersections is a, a real good way for a quick, solid composition. Um, for instance, like on the two left ones, I could have a big figure covering the two left crosses. And then I could have a little figure, like quarter of the screen and the size, put them on the top right, and I could have a nice dynamic perspective work in there. I'd open up Photoshop, but I don't think my stream can handle it. <laughs> <laughs> you have anything to add on that, Melissa? I know that's uh, I I love to play with stuff like that with with the intersecting lines and and compositional elements and uh, I I think that's really cool I, I think it's a good reminder also that you know we don't have to reinvent the wheel every single time we make a composition we can we can use these uh, these simple principles that are tried and tested and come up with something different in them uh, without necessarily having to rebuild the whole thing from scratch every time. Exactly. Like, the next thing I put on the screen... Oops, that's a little big. Uh, put on the screen here is an example of the golden ratio. Similar to the rule of thirds, if you keep cutting your space into thirds and cut the next space into thirds into the next space into thirds. That is a ratio that exists in nature in like conch shells and everything like that. And it tends to lead to a, a very pleasing composition for me. It's in my, for my taste, it tends to be a little too mathematical sometimes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I find that almost, golden ratio it tends to be perfectly fine <laughs> <laughs> but that's just another example of placement and just knowing about this you don't have to you know draw all the lines do all the calculations and everything 
just know that something roughly this size next to something roughly this size is going to make an, a nice, pleasing image. I, I didn't um, see uh, this on your outline, uh, but maybe I could just like uh, jump in real quick. Quickly. Absolutely. Okay, this is, and this is uh, one of those things that you sort of want to work out on your thumbnail diary and not necessarily on a composition for an art director. <laughs> but um, uh, Andrew Loomis uh, and his uh, creative illustration book, one of the iconic textbooks of our industry, uh, he talked a lot about uh, compositions based on letters and numbers. And because those are kind of like alphabets are kind of the pinnacle of, of perfect graphic design. And you can actually sort of compose your picture based on uh, like, like just some of those indications. And, and I think that's just really interesting to think about. So, you know, when you're thinking golden ratio, maybe you think, oh, a nice S curve might go well here, or yeah, just just cool stuff like that. You can sort of go through yep. classic paintings and yeah, find the S curves. <laughs> it's a fun game to play at museums. <laughs> and every now and then you'll uh, you'll find a, a T or or like uh, the letter A or something. It's it's pretty cool. You know the the Last Supper by Leonardo. There's a big nice A. In the middle. So, anyway. Yep. Yeah, I'm a huge Andrew Loomis fan. Uh, awesome. <laughs> uh, uh, um, for like with things like the letter shapes and and you uh, referring to classical art for uh, compositions, really DK who makes a lot of kids uh, instructional books. They have one title composition. Uh, DK, the letters DK. Um, they they make a uh -huh. lot of those like informational books for for kids. Like uh, they're expensive. Sometimes they're like thirty dollars for a cheap hardcover kids book. But there's an older one on composition that is a nice overview of of going of different classical artists and their and the compositions entailed. Um, I dropped my tablet. I will vanish for just a second. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, do we have any questions? Our people are just chatting about their own personal favorite resources for golden ratio and photography. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. The golden ratio is used uh, and the rule of thirds are very often used in photography. Definitely. Um, all right, so we'll move on then. Uh, with different, uh, also for focal points and to give variety in your image is a variety of shapes. Like have some square things, have some round things, have tri triangular things. Those differences, even if it's just the motion of a character or the, the position of their arms make like a triangle or anything like that, that gives variety to the piece and makes it easier to separate those images in the in the piece and make them different sizes everything the same size is boring 
if if you had like three circles in a row, eh. but if you had three. Big circle, then a smaller circle. Jack, you there? Yeah. Okay. What was the last thing you heard? Circles of all the same size are boring. Okay. So, circle like three equal size circles on a page in a row are going to be boring to look at. But if you would make them three different sizes and put them in different in those different spots, it'll be a much more pleasing image. So, oh, you can have like, well, let me draw on the back of my page here. <laughs> um, like, uh, oh, that's... Can you even see this? Yeah. Okay, so yeah. That, that that's kind of boring. But if you do three different sizes, you know, that's already a much more pleasing composition if you can read it. We can. And if you overlap them, or at least, you know, two out of yep. three. That's where I was going next. <laughs> so the, and, then, and then we got, like, the different shapes, the different sizes, and the overlapping. And that's already, I mean, anybody can see that's much more pleasing to the eye. And, you know, we're not saying you're just using simple shapes in your composition, but it definitely makes it, Everything has that general shape to it. People over are overall tend to be a little cylindrical, but you know their their position can make them triangular. Are their clothes? Yep, yep their clothes. Things like that. Uh, if you uh, let's see, wait, what's the name of it? Picture this by Molly Bang. That is a great book for talking about how simple shapes can be put together and make impactful pictorial compositions. I love that book. I sleep with it under my pillow. <laughs> um, any questions on that? We're following along. No. Okay. So next I have on my list is hard versus soft edges. When you're rendering, um, a hard edge is like a line or anything that comes to a line, and a soft edge is something that tends to blend out and not be as sharp. So this right here, this shading that I did, oh, I don't know if you can see it. Um, yeah. The the one side is hard and the other side is soft. That hard edge can help bring focus to it, but the soft edge makes it is less important in this case. It can be used the opposite. 
way too, but that's a little more difficult. Um, but oh, am I back? Yes, you are. Can you hear me? Yes. It can be used in the okay. opposite way too, but that's a little more difficult. Is that what you said? Yeah, I find it a little more difficult to draw the eye with the soft edge than the than the hard edge. Um, but it can be done. It's just not. <laughs> um, which brings me to my last part and focal point, which is my favorite of the perspectives, atmospheric perspective. Yes. Sometimes called aerial perspective. Atmospheric perspective is the one that doesn't have any rulers or lines or mechanical end to it. Atmospheric perspective is the further in the distance something gets, the less sharp and the less vibrant it is. So things up close will have more detail and more clean edges, and things that are further away will have softer edges, less detail. The colors will be less saturated. Um, and that shift. can that create... What's that? Is it more blue shift? If you're in a terrestrial environment, yep. as you recede into the distance. Yep, exactly. Exactly. And it, uh, it creates depth very well. And you can use it to focus everything in there, everything in your image. And you can actually use it. Normally, it's close is sharp, further away it is soft. But you can also use it like in a the opposite way a little bit with an extreme close item in shadow would be less saturated and less sharp than something in the middle. And you can therefore use the foreground to push it in the middle ground. Reverse atmospheric perspective is so cool. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'm good enough to pull it off, but uh, I try every now and then. <laughs> I've, I've sketched it here and there. It doesn't always work. But <laughs> Um, James Gurney in uh, Color and Light has a, a, a good uh, chapter yeah. on detailing it. And uh, every now and then I read it like once a month. <laughs> he has a really good website, uh, blog, community thing too, called Gurney's Journey. Gurney, yeah. And, yeah. and like all kinds of people, all, all kinds of artists can post on there. Um, I have at one point I saw a nice example of him explaining the cover to one of the the dress novels and the perspective he used and everything like that. I saw that one. Yeah, that was cool. Um. So, do, uh, who else is good? Michael Whalen is very good at that type of stuff too. He did the cover art for the entire Wheel of Time series, pretty much, right? Or did he? No, he took yeah, over after, for Wheel of Time. Yeah, after Daryl K. Sweet died, he did all the remaining covers, and they and were he took over. Fantastic. And I think he's done the cover for every Sanderson book, though. I feel like, or worked on every uh, Sanderson. Dandos Santos, who is a like a protege of Michael Whelan. Like the Warbreaker stuff that was Dando Santos, he has a lot of really similar um, qualities to his art, though. Okay, so I'm about to move on to the next subject. Any questions before I move on?
We are good. Okay. Uh, perspective. A lot of artists don't like it because it's very mathematical, but learn it. <laughs> you don't have to learn all of it, but learn one, two, and three-point perspective. Um, at least how it works. So even if you're just eyeing it, you know why something is wrong. Um, I use perspective in a lot of my pieces. Um, let me see. So here's some thumbnails I did for another piece in the book. It has different angles, different focal points. Um, the one the author chose was the fourth one. And here's where it is so far. The pencil of it. That's a three-point perspective for you there. Can you see it? It's not sharing. Mm. I really want to see it. <laughs> Did you see the thumbnails? Initially, yes. Those thumbnails showed up fine. Ah, here we go. Okay, so the first thumbnail there is a basic basically a one point perspective where everything goes into a a point in the background the second is very close up but it's essentially a um two point perspective the third is another one point perspective basically and the fourth is a three point perspective and then i'll move over to this is where the drawing is at the moment the pre ink stage can you see it? Mm, it hasn't switched over. Wait, there it goes. At least I see it. Do you see it? Oh, okay. So, yeah, perspective. Cool. Generally, can you see it now? Let me know when it pops up. Um, it's not yeah for like cityscapes and stuff like that. Yeah, you're gonna need the mechanical drawing gone. But uh, I find digital is much easier for setting it up because sometimes your vanishing points in perspective are like three feet away from your picture space. <laughs> so you can do it truly. Um, I will do a perspective grid a lot lately, where I'll I'll take the three points and I'll draw intersecting lines into a grid, and then just loosely draw on top of that grid rather than go nuts with all the perspective. That's what I like to do as well. Initially, you know, since this is design and composition one hundred and one. I would just like to say for everyone out there that is just starting out, practice perspective because then you won't get to like my age and have to look up, uh, how do I draw three point perspective again? Every single time you use it, you know, just get it into your head now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, what was the name but of the I book? Do, I, I Google it every time and say, oh, uh, yeah, that's how I do it. Yes. Okay. I'm good. So. You can do it that way, or you can 
Learn it. <laughs> I'm using a uh, perspective for comic artists. Nice. And is it, did it catch up? Um, yeah, you're you're good. So yeah, I've been using that book. Okay. That's a um, great. And uh, some of my current pieces are leaning towards the curvilinear perspective, and that's hurting me. But one t- <laughs> we're, we're, now we're into four and five point perspective, um, and no nice. straight lines in all compasses, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's breaking my brain a little. Uh, <laughs> but it's gonna so, be so cool once it's done. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, but when it comes to one, two, and three point perspective, once you get the idea of it, it's not super hard, right? Um. And where, especially with like hard-edged lines and furniture and stuff like that, you really need to know where it's going or it's going to look weird. Mm-hmm. Um, is my picture showed up yet? My sketch. I can see it. Okay, so my my sketch is a three-point perspective. Um, pretty far out. Um. <laughs> My page actually has extra pages taped to the sides for the vanishing points. <laughs> they fold out when I need them. Um, <laughs> but into a nice composition. And sometimes things like this are important because my direction for this scene was kids getting ready in the locker room before a game. I'm like, that's so boring. <laughs> so boring. But you do little weird angles and stuff to, you know, to get more out of it. I feel like you can make literally anything interesting with a weird enough angle. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, So so for the 101 and the 101 part, can you please quickly define what you mean by one, two, and three-point perspective? Okay. Draw a little sketch here. Um, so every every drawing has a basically has a horizon line. That's the part where the sky and the and the well, not every drawings have a horizon line. That's where the the ground meets the sky. Um, even if you're indoors, there's still a point where the ground meets the where the sky would be. Um, Off of that horizon line, which I'll draw on each of these here. Okay, so here's the first two sketches. I have boxes with horizon lines on them. Uh, I think this text is showing through the back. It is. (laughs) Point perspective. Oh, great. Thank you. Yeah. One point, everything goes from one one spot in the distance, spreads out. So where the point is, that's where everything converges. And up front, like the figures will be bigger. And if you're drawing figures in it, they'll get smaller and smaller and smaller as they go back. Um, 
let me see. I think one of my sketches here is. So, is my sketch showing up? Not yet. Okay, so the, th the center thumbnail here is one point perspective, where everything's going to a point in the distance. And the figures up front are getting are, are bigger and they get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller to the point where right up front here is a goalie who's like a third of the height of the page. And then in the back here, in the like towards the top in the back distance, there's a goalie who's like, you know, half an inch tall. But that's how perspective works with that. Um Two-point perspective. Is this one here? Oh, oh you do? Okay. Two-point perspective is the... Everything from the two dots and converge in the center. And that's usually when you're going to see the front and side and maybe a little at the top of an item. You'll use that. Um... Three-point perspective, you're not dealing with just angles on the left and the right. You're dealing with angles going up and down, too. So uh, brings us into another part of our, uh, which something I was going to mention later anyway, um, worm's eye versus bird's eye view. They're just like they sound. Worm's eye is what an item looks like from the, the point of view of a worm. And bird's eye is what something looks like from the point of view of a bird flying overhead. Um, so three point perspective is used mostly for those two views. Um, like bird's eye. Can you still hear me? Yeah. Hello? Am I back? Okay. You so what's the last thing you heard? Bird's eye, worm's eye. Okay. Did you hear what the, the explanation of the two? No. Okay. Bird's eye is what... Uh, the view from a bird flying overhead, what the bird sees. Oh, we did hear that. Uh, I think you were going to talk about how they were used to communicate oh, okay. things in, okay, in three-point so, perspective. So in three-point perspective, um, bird's eye is looking at the top of, like, looking at the top of a skyscraper going down. It, it, uh, you see, the roof is really big, but the bottom of the skyscraper gets really small. Um, something like this third one here. Yeah. Is looking at something really big ahead of you, which can be used for people too. So for worm's eye, a very uh, simplified person here, worm's eye would be, oh, sorry. 
this guy here where his feet his feet are really big but he gets really small there towards the head <laughs> worm's eye on me <laughs> there you go Use the camera effectively Bird's nice eye on me um, <laughs> There we go. Now everyone's dizzy. <laughs> <laughs> Is my uh, screen still sharing? Yes. Your your uh, three thumbnails are back up. Okay. Okay, so here's another one I was working on, different thumbnails. This one's a little bit of a worm's eye, where they get smaller as they go away. Can you see that? Um, so we're running out of time. So this is also what is called a tilt shot, where the ground isn't exactly even. You give it a little bit of a tilt. I to, love uh, <laughs> Yeah, tilt shots are my favorite. I use them far too often. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's where you tilt. It's like if you were watching a movie, it's where the camera is tilted a little, and it gives such more drama to the piece, to the item. Um, totally. Do we have any more questions? So far, we're following along. Um, can I give a, a book recommendation that I like? Another, I'm, I'm book recommendation girl today. Absolutely. <laughs> So uh, I, I found that uh, a book called Framed Ink by uh, Marcos Mateo Mestra has a really great discussion of not just the different perspectives, but when to use them and what they convey in terms of storytelling. Like nice. filmmakers tend to use them in specific ways. And we as as visual storytellers can also you know, piggyback onto these, uh, this visual language because yeah. everybody subconsciously knows it and it triggers yeah. things subconsciously in your viewer. Yeah. A lot of the language of different compositions actually comes from film now. Right. Yeah. Film. I mean, that's uh, our, that is our uh, poetry now. Hello? We're, we got you. Okay. Yeah, for instance, like the establishing shot is uh, a wide shot of where you are, of the location, basically. Um, I forget what it used to be called in illustration, but it used to have a different name. But mm -hmm. now they just use establishing shot because... Because we all know what that means. Everybody knows it. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Can you please repeat the book title again? Oh, sure. It's called Framed Ink. I think there's two of them, right? Oh, there's yeah. yes. There's volume one and volume two uh, by Marcos Mateo Mestre. It's M-A-T-E-U dash M-E-S-T-R-E. Um, another, another thing that I like to do if you're stuck on a a composition which with this book with all the hockey teams and everything like that was tough because they're all vertical uh orientation 
So I got to wow. fit 10, 20 characters in a vertical orientation. And it starts to get redundant and boring. So what I started doing is watching, when I was watching the new Voltron cartoon. It's, a team, it's a team show. Uh, Joaquin Dos Santos, who used to work on Legend of Korra as well, mm -hmm. um, has great composition. The figures in different points in space, far back. So I started watching that because it's constantly got tons and tons of characters on the screen. I mean, they're all horizontal, so I had to figure that out. But yeah. uh, <laughs> but has tons and tons of characters on the screen, and I just started watching it and sketching those comp those compositions just roughly, and it started getting my mind working and coming up with new ideas of how to approach mine. That is a great idea, absolutely. On that note, we are unfortunately out of time for the and panel. And it doesn't have to be a can well, thank you, you for calling us. Yeah. Can we please get your information so thank we you. can find you online digitally and possibly throw money at you? Hey! <laughs> hey, money. Well, uh, I um, am. Uh, there you go. Okay. Go ahead. Okay, <laughs> that would be so easy. Uh, I'm Melissa Gay. Uh, my website is melissagay.com. So yay, easy. Um, I am at Patreon. Uh, just Melissa Gay, M-E-L-I-S-S-A-G-A-Y. You can find me on Instagram at uh, Melissa Gay Art, and uh, on Twitter I'm at Melissa Gay twenty three. And on Facebook, I'm melissa.gay.art. My name is Jack Para. That's uh, last name's P A R R A. Um, you can get me at, uh, let's see if this is re readable. Um, probably not. Um, I really want it to be readable. No, it's not, though. <laughs> um, you can get me at jackpara.artist at gmail.com or. Uh, my website is jackpara.com. Um, I'm also on the Discord channel here. You can hit me there if you're still on it. Um, and uh, yeah, that's about it. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, Jack. You gave such a great outline of this whole topic. It was a pleasure. Thank you. This is the first time I've done this one, so I think I made a longer outline than I needed. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> better, uh, better to have more than too little. 